Hey friends, let me tell you about Right Networks. Right Networks helps you securely transition your accounting-based desktop applications into the cloud. That's right, the cloud. Regardless of what version you're working on, as a partner you can trust, they take away the burden of IT, man. And I love that as a CEO. So you have more time that you can focus on your business. And we all know we need more time. So this makes keeping close track of your finance and operations so much easier. You can work from anywhere, anytime, and their support team is there for you around the clock. So give them a call, 888-418-4448, extension 1, or you call me. Call me or email me, and I'll put you in touch with them because we'd love to do that. So right now, I want to introduce one of um, a really fantastic CEO. I mean, this guy has had two Fortune 500 company uh, exits where he's gone and sold out for hundreds of millions of dollars. He's got, got a great book out there called the, the CEO tightrope, uh, which you need to be able to read to find out there's a system that we're not all alone in being at the top. So if you're a CEO, it is a lonely job. And Joel here is to talk to us about that job and ways that we can find other ways of getting around it. So welcome, Joel Trammell. Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, congrats on all the success. I mean, you've had a couple of successful acquisitions by Fortune 500 companies. Hey, why don't you tell me about those acquisitions and what was the biggest, you know, light bulb moment you learned in the process? Well, thanks. The acquisitions are experiences that uh, are very difficult to go through because uh, particularly the first one I was going through, uh, 95% of my net worth was tied up in the uh, in the company. Yeah. And so getting the deal done becomes very important to you to <laughs> During the middle of the deal, we're sitting in New York uh, negotiating the final T's and C's on the contracts that my lawyer's in one room, their lawyer's in the other. And I look down at my BlackBerry and find out that the CEO of the acquiring company has just resigned. Uh. And <laughs> I, I thought I had just wasted four months of my life and, and uh, was going to kind of have to start all over. Fortunately, the board stepped in and decided to move through. But but acquisitions are, are very difficult. Uh, you need to find willing buyers, it's very hard to sell a company. You need to find somebody who's who actually really wants the company because there are a lot of details. It's never perfect and it's a long process. And so learn to be patient, uh, learn to, to prepare ahead of time, do all the right things legally, uh, financially that, that allows you to be ready for, for when an acquisition comes along. It's probably the most important lesson. Yeah. What was that? I mean, when you sit there and look at your BlackBerry at that time and you see that, I mean, did your gut just just did you just get sick a little bit or did you? Oh, <laughs> absolutely. It felt like the proverbial gut punch. And I, yeah. I got up to walk to the other room to meet uh, the person from the other company to see maybe they knew this was coming. Maybe it wasn't such a big surprise. And he was walking the other way down the hall looking at his BlackBerry, and I realized he didn't know it was coming either. And so that was yeah. a really uncertainty for about 48 hours. Yeah, of course. And you're sitting there, you know, and I've bought and sold you know, like 250 companies in my career. And, and when you sit there and these things happen, and there's always these moments, right? There, there's always some yeah. moment in the acquisition where it's a, 
it's a this is it you know kind of moment and there's no going back and so this is what i i got you have to stay cool though don't you joe i mean you have to stay calm you have to act like you've been there before right uh you try uh <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I appreciate your honesty there because that I, I i appreciate that because it is tough i mean everybody thinks hey we're the ceo we're supposed to be you know you know the guys that are without emotion and so forth and so on but it's tough to do yeah, especially, you know, this was a case where they had brought 40 or 50 people into the business. Uh, we only had 260 employees at the time. So everybody knew something was happening. Mm-hmm. My whole ex- executive team was going to, you know, uh, make a significant amount of money from the transaction. So everybody's, you know, ha- invested uh, and you feel like, uh, you know, you've got to make it happen or a lot of people are going to be very disappointed. You know, I'm a, I want to get into more CEO things in just a second, but but I do want to dwell on this because I've got somebody who's who's been on that other side, and I think it's interesting. Um, when you go into that, have you kind of outlined like this is the high, this is the low, these are my conditions of satisfaction, and inside of that, I would you've got to have a window of what you're willing to put up with and what you're not. If that makes does that make sense when I'm asking? Oh, absolutely. But when you get into a large deal, I mean, there are just a million details that, uh, you know, you can't anticipate ahead of time. I mean, you know, you agree on price, uh, whatever that means, uh, very early, of course, in the conversation. But but as somebody once said, uh, you let me set the terms and you can have whatever price you want. Uh, And so there's a lot of that involved as you go through every term matters. you know, the different uh, representations, different uh, things that uh, could go wrong in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, there there are many, many places, as you say, along the way where you feel like the deal may fall apart. Well, let's talk about that, like the terms. I, I think that was a great statement you just made. Um, I've never heard it like that before, but I do agree with it in that, you know, you can say, hey, here's our purchase price. But, uh, you know, what you think is a purchase price and what I think is two different things, because now we got stock involved. We got <laughs> it's got an earn out in it. It's got right, that, you know. It's, exactly. It's got your 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 receivables. Do I get to keep those, or you're keeping those? Is it a bulk sell transfer? I mean, there's all these different kind of things go in. So I think that's a an important thing. I always talk about conditions of satisfaction, and I I, I like this. Uh, you set the term. You let me set the terms, and then we can go from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so there are a million different things that can affect the deal. A lot of things around people. Uh, You know, how long people are going to stay on board, what, uh, you know, whether they're going to have non-competes in place, uh, uh, you know, certainly things around holdbacks of money, what uh, violates terms of the agreement, IP rights, or, you know, is that clean? Uh, There there are, again, a million things. This is why lawyers make a lot of money in these deals, uh, because there are a million things that can affect the deal. Yeah. And, you know, and, and a lot of times it's a lot of emotion in there, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, to, to use the old, uh, you know, ham and egg joke, uh, you know, if you're the owner and founder, you feel like the pig uh, in, in the deal, not just the chicken. You're you're more than just involved in the deal. And often you're negotiating with a side that it's not their money, uh, you know, but it is your money. And so it's it's really asymmetrical in the in the emotional uh, state of, of working through the deal. So when you and, and um, one more question on this area, and then I want to move on to some CEOs. But I've always found that the probably the most difficult thing that I ever had in these deals was keeping everybody in the corral. 
And, uh, you know, where an attorney didn't come up with this or this or this, or I'd, I'd had to deal with an employee, um, you know, or an executive who was going to lose their job as part of it, you know, and didn't want to sure. do that, you know, and I had sure. to convince them that this was a really good thing and that this was better and that, and, or, you know, they were, we're going to put the two teams together and this person's going to now oversee that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is that what was your toughest thing in in doing the deal? If you had to sit there and say, "Hey, man, that was my toughest thing." What was that? What was that? Yeah. So you know, in in the case of uh, the deal we've been talking about, uh, my wife and I were co-founders, uh, so there was a spousal element. Mm. Uh, she she really wanted to sell the business. I really wanted to get the best price. So so that was tough. Uh, the board. That was uh, your first sale, by the way, right there. Yeah, yeah, that was the first sale. Uh, and so that was tough. Uh, the board was not uh, ex- heavily experienced in our particular industry and so didn't know what terms and conditions were typical in our industry. So they mm-hmm. had some reservations about terms and conditions that just based on their experience. Uh, and then the exec team, uh, you know, this was 2009. We had just come. We were starting to come out of the recession, but it had been a long slog from 2007 where things started turning down. 2008, Lehman fails. Uh, and so the exec team was was a little tired. And yeah. and so, uh, you know, all three, you know, people think the CEO's in charge, but you have a bunch of stakeholders who are all depending on you to satisfy their needs. Yeah, just remember, everybody that's listening, no matter how big you think you are, there's always someone bigger. <laughs> you know, it's, that's been my rule all along. Even though when yeah. you think you're in the the boss, you're not in the you're not the boss. You got a lot of people. One guy down the line can mess it up for you, or change it. You know, and that's a, which is okay. But that's just part of the job. Hey, let me take a break um, because I want to come back and talk about selecting new CEOs and what's the criteria. So, but but talking about criteria, I love Dunkin' Donuts, but sometimes I don't like the line. Now that's that good for Dunkin' Donuts. I got a line. Bad for me because I don't want to wait in line. So you know what I do? I download their uh, smartphone app and I skip the line. I order my morning coffee in advance. In fact, I use in New York, I do it um, ahead of time before I leave the apartment. I order it and by the time I get downstairs to the corner, boom, it's there. I just tap ready for pickup and when I go there, I skip the line, pick it up and I walk out. It's that easy and that's why America runs on Duncan and so does all business. Um, are you a coffee drinker, Joel? I am not. Yeah, you're not. What do you do? What do you do? Do you drink tea or something? Or uh, I'm a soda drinker. That's my one addiction. Yeah, well, good. Well, you know, you got to have something. You got to have <laughs> something. So that's all right. So talk to me about companies selecting new CEOs. What are the criteria? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing over the last 20, 30 years is board composition has really changed. Uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, a board, uh, especially of any company of any size, consisted of a bunch of ex-CEOs, uh, and, and maybe it was an old boys club, and, and there were problems with that. But but one yeah, of the advantages... I still think it's an, it's still an old boys club. I mean, only well, 18% of, of women are on corporate boards today. I mean, it, it's still, still tough. It's still tough. Yeah, but it, well, what we've done when we've diversified, not not necessarily gender diversification, but but uh, position diversification. Yeah. So now if you look at boards, there are a lot more accounting yep. uh, types because of Sarbanes-Oxley. Mark- cost- marketing people, a lot more marketing people. Marketing people, customer representatives. And so when you go to select the CEO, it's often interesting that many of the people sitting around the table have never been in the job. And so I, I think 
I think we do probably a worse job in some ways of selecting CEOs these days than we did uh, in the past because because I think if you haven't been in the job, it's tough to understand uh, the unique nature of the job. Yeah. Did you have you seen the news about Lego recently? I did. It's so here's a company that just did the abrupt removal of its chief executive after eight months, eight months on the yeah. job, and they replaced him with somebody new. And I'm thinking, what? I mean, <laughs> you didn't know this guy? I mean, because it's a pretty big vetting process picking your CEO. What did they find out? All of a sudden, they, they found they had two left feet or something like that? I, what do you think goes through a company when they do something like that? Well, clearly something you know, very unusual happened. I tell people when, when we select a new CEO on the boards I'm on, you can almost wake me up in two years uh, yeah. because I can't tell you the, the things the CEO needs to do are so in the fu- future oriented, uh, yeah. building a new team, uh, you know, selecting the right strategy, building the culture. You can't judge somebody in eight months. Now, I don't know if there was some, you know, activity. There's got to be something. Did. I mean, this guy must have, they must have just finally realized, whoa, he he's not going to, he doesn't know, he can't spell Lego, I guess. Maybe something <laughs> like that. I just thought, my God, I, I would I would feel, if I were bored, I would be not only embarrassed, but man, I would start looking at, you know, am I, am I even the right person to be serving on this board? But, Absolutely, that's yeah. a that's a huge board failure. Yeah. So you, um, well, I think it's interesting that the, the process that we go through that. And I, to me, I think we've we've taken a lot longer to make these decisions than we used to, um, and I think we're a little bit more cautious than we used to. Would you say that's the case with CEOs? I, I think you know part of the challenge is we have a lot less history. Uh, you know, I think, you know, 30, 40 years ago, a lot of CEOs that took over had long histories working in the company they were taking over. Yeah. Uh, but now we have so much movement of executives around companies that often, uh, you, know, you know, you're not finding the appropriate candidates within your company. And even if they are, they may have only been there a few years and you don't have long experience with them. So yeah. it makes it harder to evaluate uh, the candidates. And, and I think it's hard to know when you put take somebody from an executive role and put them in a CEO role, sometimes it's very hard to know how they're going to react to that role. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, we're talking about the second most volatile position, the most volatile being the CMO, meaning that's the one that typically goes first, uh, having been there many times. But the CEO is second, and CFO is always third for some reason. They, they, they hardly ever leave. Um, hey, you made a, a recent interview, and I really like this, so I'm going to quote it. You said, any decisions that are above the waterline that aren't going to sink the ship, I want those decisions made by other people in the organization. I, I thought that was a pretty smart decision. You know, I say I have a saying in mind that I kind of borrowed from a guy down in, in Texas, actually, Fort Worth, Jason Forrest. I will not, and I say I will not do the work of my very talented team. I mean, and that's kind of the same thing. So how do you determine what's above the waterline and, and how do you delegate it? Yeah, experience and practice. I, I think you can tell more about a company uh, by the speed and velocity of their decisions than any other factor. It's, I think it's a big reason why startups often you know, outperform larger companies. They can just make decisions so much faster uh, than bigger companies. And so it, it is incumbent on the CEO to push those decisions down, which means you have to talk about decisions. And every time... Yeah. You know, people bring a decision to your to your desk. The first question I think in my mind is, should I be making this decision? Uh, 
And if the answer is no, then I immediately push back. I don't give them the answer. I say, this is your decision. If you want my consultation, if you want to talk about it, I'll ask you a few questions. Uh, and then once we make the decision, uh, once you give me the decision, I'll evaluate it. But but it's your job to make the decision. But that's training and engagement. Uh, and it's important for CEOs to build a decision-making culture uh, in their organization. It's hard to just tell your people, well, you make the decision. You really got to train them, right? And then go go ahead. Yeah, say. I was going to say, you've got to train all the way down. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the stories I use all the time is about Walmart, right? If you walk into any Walmart in this country and you put an item on the cashier's table there and say, I saw this for a dollar cheaper down the street, uh, what happens? Uh, well, the, the cashier just lowers the price. They don't call Bentonville. They don't even call a manager over. As far as I know, they don't even enter a special code. They just give you the lower price. And But that doesn't happen with 300,000 employees by accident. There, there's a huge amount of training and effort and management that went into making that happen and allowing that cashier to make the right decision at the right time. And they ran the numbers. I, I, I once asked Steve Quinn, who's the chief marketing officer, how often does that happen? That somebody walks in and does that, and he said 4%. Right. So, you know, in essence, it's not even a rounding error for them. And so it's a lot easier to just cut fish and cut bait, let the decision made at that lower level. But it also is says something about a very empowering organization, even at a, a big behemoth like Walmart. Oh, well, let me take a break. I got to take a break. I, I, God, I, I get so excited and so interested in the conversation, I forget to make money. That's hard for me. So uh, a tax season is over, but you 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 might have requested an extension. So listen up. So October is going to be here before you know it. So you better check out Liberty Tax Service for all your prep needs with uh, over four thousand stores professionals at Liberty Tax, led by the granddaddy of taxes. I love John Hewitt. Hewitt, he's the founder of this company. This is his third big tax company and uh, his last one sold out for 400 million jackson hewitt of course and now i guess i shouldn't say his competition's name anymore but he owned it and now now he's now he's running liberty tax and they'll provide you with the most accurate return guaranteed so go to libertytax.com for more information so um let me ask you about um about whistleblowing you wrote a you wrote an article encouraging whistleblowing why yeah, it's very easy when you get in the CEO role to get insulated from any differing opinions. Mm-hmm. And, and it, when people are agreeing with you all the time, you think you're smart. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to go out of your way to encourage differing opinions. And so in some cases, that's going to come in forms that you don't like. Uh, it's going to come in ways that make you uncomfortable. Uh, but if you don't encourage that, my sense is long term, you're going to have major problems that you're not going to be able to address in the organization. Yeah. And, and a lot of that will be, I think, around some credibility. So how do you how do you admit you're, you're wrong? I mean, that puts you in a vulnerable position as a CEO. Well, you, you got to be careful as CEO when you start out not to convince everybody you're always right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the problem. Too many people start out. Uh, either in trying to get to the job uh, or once they get the job, they say, I, oh, I can't let anybody know that I have any doubts. And once you go down that path, it's really hard to recover because we all have doubts. Uh, in every business I've run, uh, you know, almost every day, 
Uh, I tell people the right attitude is paranoid optimism. Uh, <laughs> you, you have to be paranoid about anything that can go wrong, but you have to be optimistic that in the end, things gonna are going to work out. It's going to work, yeah. And so you, you, if you set that up front, it's a lot easier. But if you set the idea that I'm, I'm always right, we always win, everything always goes perfect, uh, you're setting yourself up from fa- for failure from the beginning. Yeah, I always live with that thing of I don't know what I don't know. And I'm okay with saying that. I'm okay with saying that. I remember once I was in this a meeting as a CMO, big meeting with lots of agencies, and and somebody said something about a certain term, and I said, I don't know what I don't know what that means. What's that mean? And and um, afterwards, my VP of branding came over and said, you shouldn't say that. I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, that's a pretty common term in marketing. I said, not where I'm from. So maybe in advertising it might have been, but I don't. I said I've never heard of it. So I'm going to say I don't know, and and I think that's okay to do. What, what do you think about that? Absolutely, I, I, that's critical. The, the job of the CEO is not to be the expert on everything. The job on the CEO is to make the right decision by leveraging the experts on everything. Yeah. When you say making decisions, you talked about a three-step process. What are the three steps? Well, first, you've got to decide, again, when somebody comes to you, is it my decision? Too many mm-hmm. CEOs just give an answer because it's easy, right? Uh, and then you, you, you've kind of you know encouraged them, trained them to bring everything to your desk, right? Yeah. So first, is it my decision? Yeah. Uh, and then secondly, if it is my decision, I still want to hear their input on it. I want to use it as a learning opportunity. I want to hear what they would do if they were me and why. Uh, and then the third step, once you've made the decision, you've got to communicate the decision, but also the why of the decision. So every time I make a big decision in my organization, I'm going to sit down and write a paragraph or two that says, here are the things I considered. Here's why I made the decision. Here's how it supports our mission, vision, values uh, in the organization. I heard these objections. I hear them but I've decided to do this. And so communicating that why of the decision is really critical to, again, build this learning culture of how to make decisions. Yeah, well, in both of them, in the latter two, I think those are also the training opportunities you were talking about, the educational opportunities for other people to see why you would do it. So even if it's my decision, what's your opinion? Because then now they're helping you make the decision. You know, uh, usually, and then the caveat around the why I think is great too—a great, great education as well. You've you've also been critical about people using the CEO as a title. You know, we've got the C-suite network, and we have a lot of CEOs that are very small businesses, and they think they're the same as a billion-dollar company. I mean, in stature, which you know, they're just different numbers of zeros behind the numbers, but. Why do you say that if you have a small number of employees, you maybe you shouldn't do that? Yeah, I, I think there are you know certainly different stages of the CEO job, and and I wouldn't you know be critical of somebody using the title, but I think they need to understand the, the nature of the job, and and so to me the the chief executive job implies there are other executives first of all uh, that you're big enough that you need other executives, and so what what I find is somewhere in the transition from about 25, 30 employees to about 75 employees in most businesses, there becomes a full-time CEO job. Below that, your CEO and VP of sales and VP of marketing uh, or whatever. And, and you're really, if you can get everybody in the room, 
there are a lot of the functions of the classic larger CEO that you just don't have to worry about because you can just tell everybody, you want to change directions in a 20-person company, you call everybody in the conference room, you say we're changing directions, yeah. and you change directions. Yeah. In a 500-person in a, in a company, you want to change directions, you've got 12 sites, uh, you can't call everybody in the conference room, and you don't have a personal relationship with everybody. And so well, there are a lot of pieces that that you can't skip in that relationship. And then if you have a 5,000 or a 50,000 person company, there's certainly even another level of complexity there. And so it's just a very different job than running a 10 person or 20 person company. That's a very hard job. I think the hardest job in the world is running an organization without access to the proper resources to run it correctly, which is the situation a lot of very small businesses find themselves in. So that's a very difficult job. But it's a little different than the classic CEO job. Well, let's just take that. You said change directions. How about we, we, we give this small example, Joel? How about paint a room in the business or paint the building? Let's imagine you want to paint the building in a small business. You, just as you said, you get everybody together. Hey, we're going to paint the building. In fact, let's do it Saturday. Everybody show up on Saturday. We're going to paint the building. You're the CEO of a large organization, 100,000 employees, and you want to paint the building. How many people you got to go through to get that done? You're right? Am I right? A whole bunch. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. First of all, you don't know the guy down at the level. Typically, you won't. And then I got to tell you, there'll be about 10 people, and then you might even have to bid the damn thing out. So anyway, it's... <laughs> yeah. And you might find out in uh, some country you operate in that paint's illegal this month, you know? And there are all kinds of things that bother you. Exactly. I remember one time I was trying to clean the floors in our room, and I got in trouble with the labor unions just for, you know, for buying a steam cleaner and cleaning some car carpets on a Saturday because they needed cleaning and I wanted to save the company money. Right. Oh my gosh. Anyway, you know, a, a lot of startups, they, they like to push for exit strategies. Now, I haven't gone through a few of these and you've got some really, I mean, look, nine figure acquisitions. That's, that's commendable. Um, what We find that having gone through a few exits, what's the best strategy to place yourself and your company up for an exit? And, and then my next question along with that is an acquisition, how much of it's timing and how much of it is luck? I tell everybody when you're building a company, you should make decisions assuming the company's going to be around forever. Yep. Uh, and so that should be your your uh, you know mindset. And so you want to drive stakeholder value. You want to drive growth as much as you can. Our motto was grow as fast as we can without running out of money. Uh, and that's what prepares you for an exit. But you don't make any decisions based on, oh, in two years we're going to sell, in three years we're going to sell. Uh, you make your decisions assuming the company's going to be around forever. And then companies are bought, not sold is a famous phrase. And that's absolutely true. You can have the greatest business in the world, but if nobody's interested in buying it, uh, you know, you're not going to get top dollar. And the reason, having sat on the other side of the table in some large companies and listened to why they make their decisions are very different than the reasons you may think they want to buy something. You know, uh, we, we got one of our deals done because the CEO was getting pressure from the board to do something. And so he was willing to step up and offer us the, our price we wanted. But if the board hadn't been giving him pressure, he probably wouldn't have offered our price. So that was a lot of luck uh, timing. And so there is a lot of luck involved, especially when you have a, a, a big exit, to, you know, relative to kind of traditional market values. So when it comes to enemies, you have you seem to have a little bit of a different strategy too. You you like to you you kind of make them friends and and don't treat them as adversaries. How did you develop this kind of? I guess it'd be a Machiavellian, <laughs> holding them really tight and smiling at them. Uh, well, 
you know, I've operated a lot in the in the startup world where you're trying to build a market. And if you're trying to build a market, you know, your competitors, if there's only 1% market penetration, fighting over who gets that 1% is kind of wasted time. What you're trying to do is convince everybody, the rest of the 99%, that they should be participating in the market. And so I've often reached out to, you know, what people would consider competitors, certainly people we were head to head against in deals, but tried to build the market. Because if I make the pie bigger, uh, that was more important at the stage of companies I operate. Now, obviously, if you're in a huge commoditized market where there's, you know, already 100% market penetration, then maybe you're just beating each other's heads about one point of margin or whatever. That's a different business. But in a lot of early stage, a lot of technology businesses, what you're really trying to do is create the market. And so you're, you ought to want, your competitors ought to work, want to work with you because that's the real opportunity. If there becomes a huge market, there's usually room for a couple of players. Uh, but if there doesn't become a huge market, there's not room for anyone. Well, and you want a great competitor, quite frankly. That helps your value. It helps your value. It helps the industry. It helps everything. If You're only as good as your best next competitor. That's correct. I mean, if you're the prize fighter and you're winning against no one, I guess you're not much of a prize fighter. (laughs) uh, One more thing, and then uh, before we have to wrap up here, I want to talk about credibility. You know, uh, it's really taken a real hit lately and uh, for a lot of CEOs. And you made the case that CEOs' credibility is more fragile than a politician's chances for election. <laughs> Speak to me about that. Well, you know, credibility gets back to the basic concept of leadership, which I define leadership as just the ability to influence others uh, to do things that you want them to do. And once you, you know, have destroyed your credibility, there's just no return. You you can't get over it. So when I'm on a board and I see a CEO that's lost credibility with the team, uh, it's just time to move on. And so it's so delicate. uh, It's so very easy to say something uh, and, and, and lose credibility and people start doubting. And then there's just no way back. So to me, it's the number one thing that CEOs should focus on is not saying things that, you know, people may think uh, may or may show down the line that, that they really didn't believe it to be true. Yeah, if you can't walk the talk, it's pretty hard to get back from that. Exactly. Yeah, it's really tough. So um, tell me about Chorus, your new business. What Tell me, what are you doing there? Yeah, yeah. so, you know, unfortunately having some exits, I kind of get to do what I want to do, which is uh, help CEOs run their businesses better. And, and because of the unique nature of the job and many people that get the job have never had it before, uh, what we've done with Chorus is provide a platform to help CEOs run their organizations better. Uh, it provides some management fundamentals and, and just basic uh, blocking and tackling in software to help you make sure you're doing the right things to maximize productivity in your organization. And I assume there's different pricing points for different sizes of companies, or is it make is it all? It's on a- it's on a per-employee, per per-month basis, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's very, very cheap. I always ask CEOs, if you could take out each employee to lunch once a month and learn all this information and organize them and align them, uh, would you do it? And they say, of course I would, you know, but with 500 employees, I can't take everybody to lunch. So Chorus provides that kind of functionality for you to communicate and align the organization. And So how did you get this kind of folksy kind of like down-home 
where you just put it like straight like that. I mean, that's an interesting way. I mean, it's kind of hard to fight that. It's kind of hard to come back from, is it worth it to take an employee out to lunch and can you afford to do that or not? That's kind of hard not to to say, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my first job out of college was uh, teaching uh, for the U.S. Navy at what they call Naval Nuclear Power School. And so I think one of the things that I do bring to the CEO role is the ability to explain concepts and search for simple ways to explain, maybe in some cases, complex concepts. Well, that's one of the best things. And, well, we're doing that today right here on All Business. And, Joel, I want to thank you, CEO, uh, the CEO Tightrope. If you get a chance, uh, check that out as well. It's been a pleasure having you right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thanks so much, Jeff. Right Networks, easy to get started and easy to use. That's right, because these guys are in the cloud. Who has time for training videos and tutorials? I mean, come on, right? No one. At Right Networks, they offer 24-7, 365 U.S.-based support. So getting your business onto the cloud is easy no matter how much or how little experience that you have with technology. Come on, admit it. You might not have it all. So to learn more, give Right Networks a call at 888-418-4448, extension 1. That is 888-417-4448, extension 1. I wanted to make sure you wrote that down. So don't forget, give them a call or let me know and I'll put you in touch with them. Right Networks. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. So at the end of every show, I like to talk about what I learned, and I enjoyed the conversation, as always, as I always do with everybody. I always learn something, and I learned, should I be making this decision? Great question to ask yourself, isn't it? Should I be doing the work of my of others? If I have to answer that question, what do I need you for? Kind of a way that I would ask it, but I like the way he did it better because it's, it's a little nicer. Should I be making that decision? Is it my decision? That's a great question any leader should be asking and a great way to be able to empower your team. So that's what I learned uh, with talking with Joel Trammell today, um, author of The CEO Tightrope. So uh, one of the things that you could do, I'm going to ask you this question is, do you have a friend? Get this out to a friend. Let them know about all business. We'd love to have them listen in. And, you know, we're, we're right on everything. We're on iTunes. We're on um, every platform that you could possibly think of when it comes to uh, podcasts. So don't forget, you can find us right here. And thanks for tuning in with All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on C-Suite Radio. Welcome to C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.